Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy... Let him do it cheerfully. That's the word of God. Now, I know you're familiar with verses 1 and 2, most likely, but we need to see those two important verses in the backdrop of the entire passage that God brings to us through the word. Thank you. At the beginning of the passage, Paul uses a very interesting word, urge. It's not a word that you see all the time. And it's a word that strikes a good balance between two, two feelings. It, it strikes a balance between commanding on the one hand and pleading on the other hand. It's like saying, like, it's a mixture of this. You should, please will you. And that's what the word urge, which Paul is saying, using, has the flavor of. And that really speaks to the way that a lot of pastors feel today. You see, God has entrusted to me as your pastor a certain measure of authority But that authority is a spiritual authority. There's no civic component to it. I can't put you in jail or fine you money or physically harm you. All I can do is command you in the Lord to do what is right in the sight of God. But because that authority is not binding in the earthly realm the way the law of the government is, you can safely and easily ignore it, can't you? I don't know how safely you can do it, but it's very easy to ignore the spiritual authority especially at a time like this when I stand at the pulpit, not one-on-one counsel, but I stand here with the authority of God to speak on behalf of God to you out of love. And so when this word goes out, it's important you understand that it's not just me pleading at a rational level for you to be convinced, but there's a measure of authority which comes over you through the word of God, and you're meant to hear these things. But again, the best I can do like Paul is on the one hand to command in the Lord, but on the other to plead with you, will you see that this is right? That this is not the words of one man to many people, but this is the word of God for you. Will you do what God's word is describing for you to do? Paul uses that authority to do battle against three very common human tendencies that bring damage to the body of Christ. The first of those is narcissism, The deep love of self. Me, 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 me. 
The second is lonerism. I'm an island. I don't need anyone. I don't have anyone. I don't care about anyone. And the third thing that tendency is battling, battling is consumerism. I'm only here to get stuff. Give me a wide berth. Don't, don't get in my face. Don't guilt me. Don't pressure me. I'm here to get, not to give. Those are three tendencies that are so common in the human heart. And Paul now is using his authority to do battle against those things. Because if those things catch root in the church, they will destroy the church. So I've got a biblical foundation to, to lay for what Paul announced today as a servant expo. You see those little science fair project type trifold things back there? They are not meant to be background scenery for you to ignore while you drink your coffee today. Today, listen to me now. God is going to call many of you to an active response to your hearing of the word of God. My aim and God's aim this morning is not simply to convince you that something is true, but to move your hands and feet to respond to him and leave you no safe quarter to just ignore this and say, that was a nice sermon, business as usual. You are meant to respond, and the invitation is going to be given to you to go and do that today. Let me give you the biblical foundation for why that's important for us to do. And I'm just going to warn you up front, I'm going to give you one longer point, and then I'm going to give you a couple shorter ones. I'm going to build this message around three key words which God is asking us to do to respond to and battle against those tendencies that break the church. And the first word is offer. We are to offer ourselves, our whole selves, as living sacrifices to God. See, Paul, writing to the Roman church, boldly exhorts them, here's your right understanding of the Christian faith. It is an ongoing journey of offering your whole life to God as a living sacrifice. That, to me, is one of the the greatest definitions of what Christianity is, is a lifelong journey of offering our whole selves to God in gratitude. This picks up on a theme which Paul has has given us earlier in Romans, in Romans 6.13. Listen to what he says. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. What he's saying is this. Every one of us, every day, we're offering our lives to something. Do you remember how Jesus said it? You will either worship God or money. Everybody worships something. Everybody lives for something, is devoted to something. And the key question is not if I do, but what that thing is. What is the object of your devotion that defines your life? To what or to whom have you offered your whole being? That's a question worth really wrestling over, isn't it? It's a question every one of us will have to stand before God and answer someday. To what or to whom have you offered your whole life? And here's what Paul says. We do this in response to what God has already done for us. In view of God's mercy, Paul makes this bold exhortation. He can't just look at people and go, give everything you have to God. That's an absurd statement. Who would do that? We we can never be commanded to give all of ourselves to someone just because it's a good idea. 
We need a reason to do something that crazy. And the reason Paul gives is in view of God's great mercy. Let me put it another way. Everything God will ever ask of you and me is in response to something great he has already given to us. This is different from every religion that mankind has ever known or invented. In every other religion, we give to God so that he would give favor back to us. We throw crying, shrieking virgins into volcanoes so that God would bring a good harvest or rain or stopping the rain. We give to God in every other religion so that this God would be pleased and then give good things back to us. It is only in Christianity... That we give to God because or always in light of the great mercy he has already given to us. You know, as little children, we're taught two important phrases, aren't we? Or at least I hope we are, if we're not barbarians. We're taught two important phrases, please, and what's the other one? Thank you, that's right. Children are taught please and thank you. Let me ask you this. Which one of those words do you use more often in your relationship with God? Which, which of those two words do you find yourself saying to God more often? Please, please, please give me what I still lack. Please, it's valid to ask God for things. Who else are you going to ask but Daddy? But do you find that the pleases are far, far greatly outnumbering the thank yous? Because I think that is the great sickness in the American church today. Is we have specialized in saying please and we've forgotten how to say thank you. But you see, the entire Christian life is defined and built upon a gratitude for what God first has done when we didn't even know to ask him for it. Without gratitude, your Christianity will never, ever make sense. And so I ask you again, which of those words do you find yourself saying more often? See, we need, we'll get bitter every time God asks us to make a sacrifice or an offering of our lives. We will get bitter if we think, why do I have to keep giving him? What has he done for me lately? And so our eyes need to be fixed on the great thing which God has done for us. You know, the famous missionary David Livingston, um, when he heard from, he, was, he gave his life to Africa. And he traveled all over Africa meeting with tribal peoples, and just he gave his whole life to it. And everyone in Europe just said of David Livingston, he's lost in dark Africa. What a great sacrifice. Word drifted back to him that people back home were making much of his great sacrifice. And here's what he wrote in his private journal in response to that. Away with such a word, such a view, and such a thought, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, Sickness, suffering, or danger now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make of us pause and cause the spirit to waver and sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. It's a powerful statement from a guy who gave more than most of us will probably give for the sake of the kingdom. That he was able to do it 
Because he first built his Christian faith on thank you rather than please. This offering of ourselves we give to God is not a token gesture. What God wants from us is no less than the totality of our being. He wants everything. He wants our body. Look at this. I urge you to give up your bodies as living sacrifice. Why is that important? Because while God can work in our minds and our hearts, he can only work through us, through our bodies. Isn't that true? Everything God will do through you, he will do ultimately through your body. Even if he plants a revolutionary new thought in your mind, unless you write it, speak it, live it, it will die with you. The work of God in you can be contained, but the work of God through you is through the agency of your bones and your flesh and your organs. He uses, redeems our fleshly bodies to do something for himself on the earth. And so it's right that we offer our bodies. And that's a question I'm going to ask you. You may have used your checkbook. You may have used your voice in prayer. But I ask you, have you been using your body as a living sacrifice to God lately? There is no subcontracting in the service to God. We don't say, well, I'm management. I let labor take care of the trailer and all that. I just write checks and direct stuff. Is there a component of active manual labor in the way you serve your God? He also wants our minds. Look at verse 2, that famous verse. And he's saying, really, the transformation we're going for in life begins when there is a renewing of our minds. Here's another way of saying that. If you are a Christian... A very important part of that experience will be a radical change in the way you think. He wants to completely change your thought processes. He doesn't just want to overlay them with Christian language, like replacement words for profanity or things like that. You know, um, in, in the South, if you go to the deep South and people want to judge you, this is how they say, bless your heart. That's a Southern way of saying, what a moron. My goodness, they still make people as stupid as you. And they say, bless your heart. Is that what God's wanting to do is have us just change our language, but the heart is still the same? The thinking is still the same? No. He's saying, I want your entire mind because ultimately the mind drives the body. The way you think must undergo a revolution. And so I ask you this, honestly, listen to this now. Come before God and hear this. Have you undergone a radical change in the way you think. Your goals and ambitions, your insecurities, your fears, your prejudices, have those things been transformed and renewed because Jesus has changed the way you think? And then lastly, our will. That's, it's everything. He wants it all. Would you guys have, there, you, there you go. He says, if you do these things, you'll be able to test and improve what God's will is. What does that mean? Why would we ever care what God's will is unless we've made a decision in our hearts that my will is submitted to God's will? This is really, I think, where the great pitched battle for the church today is fought. Our bodies are healthy. In fact, overhealthy. We're, the, we're one of the few places in the world where we have so much food, we're constantly trying to lose weight from all that food. Our bodies are strong. We are well-resourced. We can do so much. Our minds are sharp. We are educated far beyond our obedience. But here's where the battle really breaks down, is the battle of wills. I'm able to do what is right. 
I know the difference between right and wrong. But where I battle is I just can't get myself to choose to do what's right. In the end, when people tell me this is right and that is not right, my heart, my will fight. And I say at the end of the the battle, I don't care what God wants. I don't care what you all want. I know what I want. And here's a great American saying, the heart wants what it wants. That's a carte blanche excuse, right? Hey, what am I going to do? I'm only human. The heart wants what it wants. And that's the great American way of decision making. We listen to sermons week after week. We hear the truth. But in the end, our wills are not submitted to God. And that's why we choose that which we know is not the will of God. And so what God says is your Christianity is defined this way. It is a lifelong journey again and again of offering your whole selves, your body, your mind, and your will to God in grateful response to what he has already done for us. And so he says, if we do this, this is our spiritual act of worship. The language Paul's using in verses 1 and 2 is very clearly what we call cultic language, the language of religion. It is the language of a priest bringing an animal, laying it on the altar, slitting its throat, letting the blood run over. This is the language, the imagery he's trying to evoke. And he's saying, look, you all grew up watching this every day of your lives. A priest would go up, he'd go through the motions, he could practically do it in his sleep. The Old Testament priest could butcher an animal without even waking up. So many animals lost their lives on that blood-caked altar in the name of religion. And what Paul is attacking is that, he says, you thought for years that that was worship, that that's what God actually wanted was to watch the blood of animals run down over a hunk of stone. How far from the truth could you have been? <clears throat> What God wants is not rituals, ceremonies, which substitute for worship. What he wants is nothing less than your entire being engaged and offered to him. This is the beginning of Christianity. It's not some advanced Green Beret, Navy SEAL, Delta Force. It's not black ops Christianity we're describing here. This is the beginning of the Christian journey. Is that our lives are offered to him. And that we will never again think that what God wants is for us to go through the motions of coming to a high school cafeteria, sitting for an hour patiently, an hour or two while a service runs, writing a check dutifully, even giving up to 10% of our gross income. Going on a short-term missions project and saying, well, there, did that, it's finished, I've done my part, I am a good Christian. And God says, no, you've got it wrong. That's not what I'm after. I'm after you, your entire being. And I'm going to ask you, if you you would name yourself among those who are born-again Christians, is this dynamic working itself out in your life? Are you offering yourself up in the wholeness of your being to God? The second... And that was my long point, so let's breathe. The second thing which Paul is saying is, having defined Christianity as a total offering up of ourselves, and by the way, what makes that holy and pleasing to God? Well, I can give everything of myself, but it's kind of like giving a re-gifted white elephant present to somebody. Here it is, is what I got. It's all of it, but it's not much. 
What makes my gift holy and pleasing to God is that Jesus, the son, was perfectly holy and pleasing to God. And God, the father, accepted his son's gift. And then he gave the credit for that gift to all of us. And let me give you a quick illustration of what that's like. We're like the the mope who gets into the exclusive nightclub because our date is hot. Are you hearing me? You'd never get in by yourself, but your supermodel girlfriend just got you into the club. We're like the guy who gets an all-access pass to the west wing of the White House because my brother is the president of the United States. We are accepted because he was accepted. Do you get that? This is the essence of the gospel. That's why it's worth it to try to give an offering of our lives. Our childish gift of ourselves is acceptable to God because he's already satisfied by the gift of his son. So having defined our Christian faith that way, it stands to reason then that if our relationship with God is governed by these principles, it should also now feed over into our relationship with one another. And so the next call is accept your connection to the body of Christ. Some of you have already done that. For you, this is not just a building you come to every Sunday and people you sit next to every week. This is your home, your family. You feel truly deep down like you belong to this community and this is your tribe, your people. Some of us feel that way. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not patting you on the head and saying, you've arrived, you've done it. I'm just saying that describes well how you already feel. Some of you have not felt like that for a very long time. And you want it, but you're struggling to find it. Well, the picture God paints of the body of Christ is this. It is one where everyone is connected to everyone else. And it's not just through an organizational connection, but that we genuinely belong to one another. And here's what breaks down that kind of unity is lonerism. This idea that I'm an island, I don't need anyone, I don't want anyone, and most often we arrive at that loneristic kind of mindset by way of pain. We've tried, we put our hearts out there, and everyone just stepped on and said, ah, we don't care about your gift of your heart. We don't want to be your friend. We don't care how much you want to get to know us. You just stay out there on the edges. And some of you have felt that even at this church and the wounds have produced this kind of lonerism. It's a way of protecting yourself. Every time I care, I'm rejected. I find myself alone anyway. So I'm going to pretend that I don't care about anyone. Others arrive at that place because of pride. In this room right now, there's got to be, just statistically, a couple people who really believe that they are at the top of the food chain in this group of human beings. That while we smile and open our homes and say, oh, how great for you, we're convinced in our minds that just on a purely human level, we are superior to most others in this room, intellectually, financially, leadership-wise, integrity-wise, physical fitness-wise, that just we're cut above. In our relationships to one another, here's what Paul has to say. For by the grace given me, do not, I say to each one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. But think in sober judgment, in sober judgment, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. That's not just a call 
to personal humility. For years, I thought that's all it was, was try to be humble, but it's not. That call to humility is in the context of the body of Christ, the whole church. Here's what, practically speaking, here's what I believe he's saying. If we are self-made men and women, then we have every right in our minds to tower over others around us. Look, everyone's got 24 hours in a day. Everyone's got the American dream available to them, a public education and all that. Everybody's got the same resources. I've just managed to do more than you have with them. It hasn't come easy. I've worked very hard. Grad school was not easy. Waking up early and jogging when I didn't feel like it was not easy. Most of you have taken the easy way out, the path of least resistance. I haven't. And I know that that's on the heart of some of us. And so if we are self-made men and women, the only sane thing to do is look around and say, well, yeah, it's true. I hate to admit it, but I'm better than some of the people around me. I'm not going to wear it like a jerk, but I'll know it in my mind. Standing next to you, I've taken more risks. I've worked harder. I've been more creative, more dedicated. So why shouldn't I, in my heart, realize that I'm just a little better? I know that just sounds awful, doesn't it? I mean, when you say it out loud, it sounds terrible. But have you ever felt that way? I'm, not, I'm using you a lot. I've felt that way. I've stood next to pastors who I feel like are lazy. They don't love their people. They, they write their sermon at the red lights on the way to church. And I just look at them and go, you know, you really shouldn't be in this line. You don't really. And I think to myself, I'm a better pastor than you, man. Dude, you're just not, I don't know, you kind of lame. And if we are self-made men and women, that's okay. But here's the thing. At the foot of the cross, the playing field instantly gets leveled. Because for all the risks we've taken and the diligence we've demonstrated, at the foot of the cross, none of that resume that exists outside gives us much credit. We bring all that luggage with us. Look at all that I've done out there. And Christ says, that's wonderful. You reap the benefits of that life. But I want you to know at the foot of the cross, everyone looks the same to me. There's only two kinds of people, lost people and saved people. And at the foot of the cross, everyone who receives Christ are equally given an immeasurably great gift that instantly levels the playing field for us. You see, at the foot of the cross, there are no self-made men and women. There are only people made by God. And as a result, in that one place, that one sacred, holy place, I can't look around and say, look how much better I am than anyone else. In that place, I said, look how same we are, how lucky and fortunate each one of us is to have found our way to Jesus Christ by no virtue of our own. It doesn't matter if you're the president of the United States or a homeless person living in a refrigerator box at the foot of the cross, you are given great value and great worth in Jesus Christ. And that is why pride and comparison are totally illegitimate ways to define our human relationships when we are in Christ. Practically speaking, what that means is when I come to this church, I can never succumb to this thought that my time is more precious than your time. That my money is more valuable than your money because it was hard-earned. That my energy is somehow to be conserved while you're able to give up your time and your energy for these things. Practically speaking, what it says is when we come to church, it matters very little if you are the CEO of a multinational corporation 
or if you're a student just trying to make the grades before summer school. One of the most blessing stories I ever heard was that Jimmy Carter, who I don't really, I didn't like his politics. I didn't think he had a great presidency, but he has a great heart and an amazing Christian character. And I heard that the day after he was inaugurated president of the United States, he went to his home church and taught a Sunday school class. Dang, can you imagine being in that class and having your Sunday school taught by the president of the United States? And that was such a profound statement to me of his deep understanding of the gospel and of this faith. That in, in front of the cross, nobody's time is more important than anybody else's. You might have less of it available to you, but that just means you have a greater challenge to offer it to God. It doesn't mean you look at the people with more time and say, well, let me write the checks and subcontract to you guys. You be the labor force, the blue collar. I'm white collar. We should never say that in Christ. But my energy, my time, my money, such as is given to me, all belongs to God. It is not any more precious or valuable than my neighbor's. I think that's a very important thing for us to remember. And then he says here in in verses 4 to 5, We who are many form one body, look at verse 5, and each member belongs to all the others. We really need to understand how connected we're supposed to be to one another in the church. We live in a time where membership means next to nothing. Are any of you guys members of any of these things? Which one makes you feel the most guilty? I think it's the one in gray. That card which is pristine, never been swiped. You pay 40 bucks a month to say you go to Lifetime, even though you don't. Today, membership has no teeth. Membership means nothing. Are you loyal to Costco? Come on. Come on. You don't care about Costco. The minute Sam's Club has better produce, better meat, better deals, you jump right over to Sam's Club. No loyalty, no deep sense of belonging. If there's a fire at the Costco, will anyone besides Jason Cho be part of a candlelight vigil in the parking lot? Anyone? No. Membership today means I get all the benefit, but it requires nothing but a small fee from me. It's shallow. It's fleeting. And so when we use the word member to describe the church, it's a little misleading. We're not prepared to understand. But the word member in old language, literally means body part. Body part. An organ, a limb, a digit. There's a word, a medical term, for parts of the body that draw nutrients from the body, are connected deeply to the tissues of the body, are greedy to absorb more and more, but give nothing back to the body. Doctors, what do we call those things? Tumors. Tumors. So I ask you, and maybe I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I could be a little off on that definition. But I know that tumors grow and grow and grow. They feed off the same food you give to your liver and your kidney. They draw from the same blood supply you give to your lungs and your heart. They're made out of the same carbon molecules as your skin and your bones. But what do they do for the body? What do they give back to that body they're feeding off of? 
Nothing but early death. Lots of pain. And so that's a question for each of us to wrestle with. In this body, not in general, not philosophically, in this body, and this is not for the newcomers and visitors. Please don't feel, how can I be saying this to you guys? I'm saying this to the people who have been here longer than six months. It's the kind of time you've made up your mind whether you're going to be here or not. And I'm going to ask you this question. In this body, are you a body part or a growth? So you go see a doctor about a growth. I don't know if I'm supposed to have something that large right here. Is that right? I'm questioning. Are you a growth or a body part? Are you contributing that function which you yourself were called by God to contribute as a part of this body or not? I don't say that with the spirit of guilt and pressure and manipulation. I say this as an earnest question for you to wrestle with before your God. You owe me no answers. But you must answer God on that. Let me give you the last challenge. Having offered all of yourself to God daily and accepted your deep connection to this body, that this is not a church you go to, but a church you are a part of. Now serve according to the shape and the gifts which God has given you. Somehow in America, we've produced a Christianity that made service sound optional. Parents, when you send your child off to college, will you say to him, date lots of people, drink some beer, eat a lot of pizza, make sure you gain your freshman 15? And oh, you know what? Once in a while, you should think about studying. How many of you have sent your kid off to college? Is that what you said? Once in a while, you should think about studying. Is studying optional for a student? Even grammatically, that's silly to think about. To be a student is to study And to be a Christian is to serve God. It is not some final stage in the developmental cycle, that goal to which I aspire someday. It is the baseline definition of who we are before God. Because if I'm not serving, then what am I saying? I'm a stockholder, a board member, an executive. What am I in this body if I am not serving? There are only two things in this world. Servants and masters, which, which are you? And so the challenge, the invitation to us this morning is to serve. In these last verses, Paul's giving all these spiritual gifts. And when I read some of the commentaries, they gave this long and tedious survey of what each of these gifts were and what they look like. I'm not going to do that because, and I say this in humility, I think those commentary writers have totally missed the boat on this. Paul's aim is not to list all these different spiritual gifts. The emphasis belongs on this interesting repetition, this pairing. If your gift is, then you should blank. In other words, he says, look at yourself. If you have this spiritual gift or this equipping, well, then do something with it. I think the Nike Corporation put it more succinctly. Just do it. The power of a gift or a blessing is not in the having of it, but in the using of it. Can you imagine if you're on an airplane having a grabber, and you say, is there a doctor on the plane? And some guy goes, I'm a doctor. In fact, I'm a cardiologist. I know CPR. And then he goes back to his seat and eats his peanuts. What's the point of having CPR? 
of knowing medicine if you don't actually practice it. We make so much of spiritual gift assessments. How many spiritual gift assessment tests have you personally taken, people? Anybody taken more than three in your lifetime? Raise your hand high. More than four? More than five? Some of us could write a doctoral dissertation on the listing of all our spiritual gifts and assets. And Paul would say to you, and God would say to you, that's wonderful. But the having of them is nothing. It is what we do with them that brings glory to God and benefit to others. The emphasis is on this. If you can do this, then do this. Don't just sit around knowing you could do this. Do this. And that's the invitation to each of us. I don't want to create an atmosphere here that's poisonous with judgment, that's heavy with feelings of guilt and shame. That is the last thing I want to ever happen in this church. But I also don't want to create an environment where it's said of Harvest Community Church, dang, that's an easy church to go to. Nothing is ever expected. I hung out there for seven years and didn't do a dang thing, and I still got lots of friends there. Well, that should be wrong. In any social setting, that's a problem, don't you think? Parents, are you cool with a child who is 18 and has never done a chore in your family? I'm definitely not cool with that. But my kids, the minute they turn 16, are working all summer. Bringing home a paycheck. You hear me? <laughs> and I'm not saying this to make you feel guilty, but to just, I, I'm appealing to this sound mind which I know is in you. And the thing is, I don't really need to say this for some of you because the Holy Spirit has already been doing this work in your heart, hasn't he? He's been stirring in some of you. Wow, we've been around a while. And actually, I can't remember the last time we actually joined in, did something, bore a burden with these people. I always know because when I have a one-on-one conversation, people talk about the church or your church. Pastor Dave, your church is so interesting. I'm like... You've been coming here for like five years. Isn't it your church too yet? That's how I know that they've they've walked at an arm's length, but that's changing for a lot of people. They're starting to feel that this is our church, the body to which God has called us. And if that's happening, here's my final challenge to you. Do something about it today. Don't say... We need to go home and pray a little more about it. And, you know, yeah, pray. It's good to pray. But when a man gets on his knees and asks you to marry him, try hard at that moment to figure out where you stand. Just say something. Either yes or no, but say something. This is the opportunity, the invitation given to you, piggybacking on the work that God has already been doing in your heart. There are, there are tables back there where you can ask questions and find out more. You just watched a video that showed you how much is involved. Will you now accept the invitation? Do your part. You know, when a movie ends and you sit and watch the credits, these days with the superhero movies, you kind of have to because there's a little Easter egg at the end, a little buried treasure. But as I watch the credits, here's the one thing I marvel at. Dang, it takes a lot of people to make a motion picture. Can you imagine the payroll on that thing? 
And you wonder, even the small parts, could a movie been the movie it was without the best boy? Without the key grip? Without the third production assistant manager or something? You know, it's all these people, but working together, they produced a film you just enjoyed. I want to say a word about Heath's illustration as I close. A very common motif in literature and movies is this band of warriors, each having their own skill or their own unique shape. And on their own, it's like Street Fighter, right? The video game, when you play with the big brute, he punches once. Once he connects, you're dead. But he moves like this. And so the little ninja can kill him. And so each one on his own has one strength, and they could fight if they connect in the right perfect circumstance. But they are really lacking something else. You have size, you don't have speed. You have speed, you don't have size. And on and on it goes. But something interesting happens when you bring all those disparate individuals together and form a team and they actually work in concert. Now you've got something dangerous, lethal, and productive. And that's what that illustration captures. That age-old motif of many people who alone might have some strengths but lots of weaknesses, but together as a unit, they become a potent force for something. If the world is going to see Jesus reflected through this church, they will never get a full picture of Jesus by looking at only one of us at a time. Do you hear that? Are any of you willing to stand up and say, I alone am the model of Christ for the world to see? I can't say that about myself. That's shameful. Look, oh, Lord, you only see a small part of it if you look at me. But I want to say to them, look at the whole church and all of us together. Some of us are great at something and horrible at another, but all together we display to the world the many splendored majesty of God, the wisdom and diversity of God. This church working in concert will represent Christ to a watching world. And if you have withheld your service, then this church is less than what it's supposed to be because it's minus you and we need you. He has made you different from all the rest of us. And you have to do your part for the world to see everything they're meant to see in this church. That's the end of my message. Or at least the end of my talking. This is your chance to write the ending of the sermon. And that's the, that's the case every Sunday. When I stop talking, you finish the sermon with your lives. And so I'm going to invite you, especially those of you, God has already been prompting your heart, saying, come on, dive in. The water's fine. It's time. And I'm going to invite you to really do something about that today. Would you bow with me as I invite us now to a time of readying ourselves for the commitments we're going to make. If you have been living largely for yourself, then God's invitation to you is offer your whole life, your body, your mind, and your will to him as a living sacrifice. This is Christianity. 
if you've been going it alone, keeping the rest of us at arm's length, God's invitation to you is this. Do you know that you're part of a body? That you are as connected to us as your hip bone is connected to your thigh bone. You belong here. This is your home and your family. It may take a while for that to be fully realized at an emotional level. But understand this. You were never meant to be an audience member at this church. You were meant to be a part of our family. And if you've been trapped in consumerism, benefiting, attending, watching, but with your own hands and feet, you have not helped us pull the wagon. We want you. We need you. We're welcoming you. This is your invitation now to build the body of Christ together. Everyone is needed. Everyone is welcome. Will you do something today to take your next step in serving the Lord and building his body? I will leave you with those thoughts. And we're going to have a, a couple minutes of silence as we respond to God in our hearts. As you think in your heart about what you can do to respond, don't get too fixated on spiritual gifts. Begin with simply putting your whole life on the altar as an offering. I believe God will tell you where you can serve and where you can make a difference. Lord God, I really pray that this morning there would be a strong and surging movement of your Holy Spirit through our church. That those who are serving, who are at the edges of fatigue and even burnout, will be renewed in their hearts and souls. will see with fresh eyes the privilege and the value of serving you. Give those who serve a renewing of their hearts. We also pray that you would move powerfully in the hearts of those who now no longer want to be on the sidelines, but want to be put in the game. Guide them in their very next steps. Open up a genuine place for them to make a difference, to serve you here. Make use of their gifts, but most of all, make use of the offering of their selves to you. Lord, we want to see at the end of this service, at the end of this week, that as many people as call Harvest home are standing together, deeply committed to building this body for your sake. No more spectators, but all of us together serving you. Bless the time we're going to have now at those tables. Bless the conversations. Grip our hearts so we cannot go home until we've responded somehow to you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, 
check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.